Art Ladders, The Creative Climb is sponsored by Golden Apple Studio and Art Residency. Director Shelley Stevens enthusiastically welcomes artists and writers every summer to this unique artistic compound. Golden Apple Art Residency is located approximately an hour north of Bar Harbor along the rocky coastal region of down east Maine. Within a very quiet and secluded location, the residency grounds are situated near the tip of Ripley's Neck down a long and winding road outside of Harrington, Maine, where the main house, the studios, and the residency cottages are all less than 200 feet from shore. It is in this remote, naturally rugged and picturesque environment that Golden Apple resident artists and writers find the support and inspiration to create. This coming summer is filled. Congratulations to the 2022 residents. We wish you all a very creative and productive residency this summer. Artists and writers, I recommend that you follow Golden Apple Studio and Art Residency on Facebook in anticipation of applying for the summer of 2023. Partial scholarships are available for that season. You can also email Shelly Stevens at snstevens at gmail.com. So that's s-n-s-t-e-v-e-n-s at gmail.com or visit their website at www.goldenapplestudio.com. Armin and I are looking forward to spending time in the residency this August. See you soon, Shelly. Welcome to Art Ladders, The Creative Climb with Valerie Allen and Armin Mersman. This podcast is focused on interviews, features, and stories about art. It's for artists and art lovers. I'm Val. I'm the abstract artist in the group, joined by Armin, the realist. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to episode 17 of Art Ladders, The Creative Climb with Valerie Allen. That's me and Armin Mersman. And I'm here with Armin and we're getting ready to do a wonderful artist interview uh, that we do every other visit with you all. So Armin, how's your day going so far? It's going great. Uh, I worked a little bit on my own work today and uh, I'm thrilled to interview uh, with the interview that we have today. Uh, Robert's one of my favorite painters and so it's Kind of good to get in his head a little bit. Sure. And Robert Sheffman is our artist this week that we are going to be interviewing. He hello. Is, hello, Robert, an international artist of acclaim that we've known several years, Armin a little more than I have. So, Robert, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, so good to have you. We are going to run through a series of questions, and through these questions, we'll be able to find out more about you, where to find you on the internet, what you're currently in at this particular point. And of course, your, your resume speaks for itself. It's a beautiful resume and CV. Thanks. So yeah. Robert. Well, I'm going to take some of that off of yours and put it on mine there. Robert. <laughs> Please. Can I have some of yours? We can trade. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Or, or we could just add some of the other. Right. Ones right. right. Exactly. Great. Exactly. Oh, this is great. All you artists are probably used to working on your CVs and resumes. And uh, so Robert and Armin are going <laughs> to tell us more about that. That's great. Okay. But uh, I'm going to start way back, Robert, in your early stages of development. And I find it so interesting to hear how people make the decision that they're going to be an artist. And I'm finding through a pattern that a lot of folks figure that out very early on. Is that your experience do you uh, mine was not so early on although I had it was a great love of mine always since I was a little kid mm -hmm. I always did it on my own um where I went to high school there was no art at all Ooh. no art no art classes um and in fact when I went to college I went as pre-med that was my second life yeah my second love in life was medicine and so when I was in high school, I used to go to the hospital with my surgeon friends and go to surgery. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 17, I got a job in the hospital and I was doing autopsies. Oh, really? Yeah. 
And is that how you got an interest in art? With the autopsy? No, that and that's then I went to, to college as pre med, and I got dragged into my professor's office. Not a bad thing. It's the the typical kind of you know get in touch with the students professor thing. Uh huh. Um, and he asked, "Well, what do you like to do?" And I said, "Well, one of the things I like to do was was art." And he said, "Oh." go see my friend, Mr. Pollock at the art school. And okay. Being the naive little guy that I am, I go, Oh sure. That sounds great. So I go over to the art school, by the way, is that a familiar name? Mr. Yes. Pollock? I yes. yeah. what? That was Jackson Pollock's brother. Oh, okay. that's who was right. a WPA artist. Yes. he right? is. Yeah. And he worked at the school. So I go to the front desk and I ask for Mr. Pollock and the, the um, receptionist says, looks at me like I just asked to see Jesus Christ on a bicycle. <laughs> and she goes, excuse me. And she goes in the back and she gets the department chair and he comes out and kind of has a sad face. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, but Mr. Pollock died. Oh no. Oh no. He died five years ago. <laughs> you might right? want to get in touch, touch with that other guy. Then. <laughs> yeah. So my, my teacher, I'm going, oh, that's your good friend, Mr. Pollock. He died five years ago. You didn't know. All right. But everyone's kind of taken aback. And they said, well, what can we do for you? I said, I, I want to try and take a class. Well, do you have a portfolio? No, I have no portfolio because I didn't take classes before. And they said, well, I'll tell you what. We'll let you take one class. We'll see how you do. And that's kind of what started it. And then after taking that class, I remember spending an entire weekend sitting in the um, stairwell of the dormitory, deciding whether I was going to change directions in my life. That's a big change. Not so. Yeah. Big change, but only monetarily. Right. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I, I got to tell you, my experience and my friends, um, all my friends and all the people I lived with going to college stayed in med. And there's a commitment that goes with both. Yes. And I have to say that most of my friends whose fathers were also doctors or surgeons um, loved art, studied art. In fact, my best friend's father was a uh, pathologist here in Detroit who invented a lot of the equipment that we use. Brilliant man. And he mm -hmm. used to study with Robert Wilbur. Okay. So in his basement, he had an art studio. and it's just a, a much more normal than you would think. It's and interesting to hear that because Val and I have a daughter-in-law and son that's they're doing their residency right now. And, you know, that work ethic is there, like, which, I, you know, like your work ethic is in art. And it's not just a work ethic. I mean, it's psychologically think about how, when you sign up to be a doctor, you, you there's no putting it away. If you come up against somebody who needs help, you're helping. Yes. It's like, eh, okay, so it's not like somebody's going to come up and they're going to need art. Quick, I have an art emergency. I need a painting. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. But the <laughs> idea that you can't put it away, mm -hmm. that it's always there, it's, it's very, very similar. And mm -hmm. your commitment, yes, your commitment level is huge on both. Yeah, one, you get paid a little more than the other. Which one is that? <laughs> well, it depends whether you're an emergency room doctor because they don't get paid very well. Oh, okay. Um, they still get paid better than we do. But but that was my my big decision, and I've never regretted it. And I just kind of saw one as a lifestyle that was a lot of my family was in, um, and a lot of my friends were in, and then the other one was something that was about me. And what I could do. And I had a couple distinct advantages over the other kids when I started at school. First of all, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. They all had art in high school. So they had all these preconceived notions. They were told X, Y, and Z. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. I didn't have any of that. Right. So whatever the profs were telling me, I was like Mr. Human Sponge. I was taking it all in going, okay. I believe you. Okay. Right. 
And it was easier for me to experiment because I had no expectations, right? I didn't have a wonderful, wonderful portfolio. I didn't right. have great, you know, skills and everything else. So that was a benefit as it turns out. Crazy, right? Crazy. And, you know, even that connection of the, the science, the medical end, and then the art side of it, I would think... Um, when I think of, of medicine, I think of finding solutions, solutions to problems. And art is exactly the same way. So in your case, you were going into this, not with the art training, but with the scientific, you know, search out the solution mindset. So I'm guessing you're seeing space and, and time in different ways than the, the students in there that have learned kind of by the rules. So I think it's a wonderful combination that you went in with? It was, I spent a lot of time in high school in biology mm -hmm. and running experiments on animals and stuff in the bio lab. And I don't know if that was the same way I approached the art, but that's, I, I work in series. I work by experimentation and that's just how it goes. One thing that was of great value to me now, not when I first started, but um, ever since I took the direction I'm in now, was at 17, I think I had a very different approach to the human being than every other 17 year old that I knew. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't the norm, but it was, it was very real and it was intense. How do you not define just, that? Huh? How do you define you were different? Well, when I was working in the hospital, my experience of the human body was different than every other person's okay. experience of death, experience of working on, on um, a human being. Oh, another one of my jobs at the hospital I had, because I was uh, kind of interning from high school, they put me in different places, different labs and, you know, taking blood and going around and doing um, cytology and, and uh, the tissue lab and all these things. Um, so my interactions with patients were different. Uh, it was invaluable. Do you I think, think the, that it helped you because you do use the human form a lot? Does it help you see the human form a little differently than somebody who necessarily doesn't have that type of training? Mm, I've only done one painting where I had like kidneys showing. So okay. I don't know that that. <laughs> that, that wasn't your kidney series. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't know how much of a benefit that was. However, just a different attitude about your relationship to the body or my relationship to the body, how I think of, of, of life and death and how I think um, how tenuous our grip on it is. Uh, I'll never forget one of the autopsies I did. A man died from a tiny little cut. How do you die from a tiny little cut? You don't pay attention to it, gets gangrenous, and within days he died. Um, it just shows you, and that was the, what, the same story with what? Teddy Roosevelt's son, right? He had a tiny yeah. cut in his hand, right? And yeah. he wound up dying a week later. The approach to being human, the expectation of what we can and can't do, the idea of getting help, which is what medicine was, um, it was just different, and it just gave me a different attitude. So. When I started making artwork, uh, I got on the train in 19, what, 1971, 1970, right? Uh -huh. And minimalism was what I did. That's my training, non-objective work in drawing and in sculpture. Everything I did was sculpture. Um, and I did that for a lot of years. And I did that until 1982 when I did a sculpture for the ancient gates of Troy in Turkey. Oh, okay. And I spent a year and a half negotiating with the Turkish government through the United Nations to get permission to go to Turkey to get permission. <laughs> they, they do things in a different way. I, I would imagine so. Right? So yeah. on my 30th birthday, I was sitting on top of the hill right outside of Troy, uh, if you're familiar with the Iliad, that's the plane of Scamander, all this stuff that I'd always read when I was a kid. 
uh-huh. thinking about what I was going to do on this site. And what impressed me the most was I was, here I was sitting on a place that had been continuously occupied now for over 10,000 years. Oh, 10,000 wow. years people have been living on this one hill. Amazing. And they continue to live. Yeah. And that's what I thought. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And it opened up uh, me taking the direction of I needed to do something that was more human uh-huh. and less formal. Okay. In New York at that time, I was working doing dance theater sets. Mm-hmm. So the figure was creeping in to what I was doing anyway. And all these things kind of combined after that. And when I went to do this sculpture, um, it was only fitting that I talk about humans and use human form rather than um, non-objective form or some reducing it down to some minimalist form. Mm-hmm. That pretty much kind of got the ball rolling. Interesting. That is. And, you know, during that time period, and you mentioned theater sets, and when I read that in your background, I that really fascinated me because that has a lot of collaboration going on with it too. And you're talking about talking to the government. That's a collaboration and all of that. I uh, I really, really admire that you went th- just took the steps. And like you said, you're working when you talk about a series and then you're talking about approaching experiments, you it sounds like you systematically made that goal happen. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. And, and that's where naivete comes in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I am so thankful that for whatever naivete that I have, because it means that I go, yeah, I want to do that without thinking about how the hell are you going to do that? Right, right. Exactly. So you just kind of, I just go and and just, you know, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that enthusiastic look. Do you, do you think you carried that on through the rest of your life when you were less naive? Or do you think that you you approach art in that way still to some degree? Yeah. No, I, I approach it with that. But I also, look, at the same time, I make it my business to to learn. I make it my business to study and to do my research on all this stuff. I might start as naive. Mm-hmm. And that kind of keeps me going and interested when I get started, but then you could dive into it. But yeah, it's, it's opened up all kinds of things to me. Um, other things that are not art related in life that are just um, fun or um, hobby, whatever you want to call them, things mm-hmm. that enrich your life. And I don't think that they, they go so much to um, my artwork, although they come from, uh, I'm not a sculptor anymore. For the most part, I don't do much sculpture, right? Uh-huh. And we used to have names for painters that weren't very nice. <laughs> as Dude, you can said, share those, Robert. You can share. Well, those. as Michelangelo said, yeah, painters are artists who can't make sculpture. Right. Uh-huh. And that's the nice way of saying it. It was the other way. But yeah, so I've always... I still like to make things, physical things. And so um, still playing with uh, um, engines and other stuff is where I get that that time and that fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think the naivete lets me um, kind of go forward happily as opposed to going forward fearfully. Mm-hmm. And curiosity too, curiosity. Once you're rolling, that seems to yeah. be uh, something I'm sure that you. Maybe it's something a little bit different than naivete, but there's naivete in there, right? Oh, yeah. When you get started. Yeah. It, then there's the, well, I don't care what it's going to do. I'm still going forward, whatever I got to do. Right. right. Absolutely. It was, it, it's funny. You guys have seen old English movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, old, like 1930s movies, right? Like Gunga Dins and things like that. And okay. In the old English movies, there's always this this guy who's in some foreign country, whether it's a soldier or just a guy, and he's on his way to some place, and by God, he's going to get there, and all these people are surrounding him and crowding around him. He can't speak the language, and he's going, you know, I don't know what you're saying, my good man, but I'm going this way, right? And Mm -hmm. then 
that's the same kind of okay. Okay, going on this, going on this ride, going on this journey, right? That's super. And that's, that's the way I approach the series. Uh So people ask me, how do, do I work? And, and I start with an idea, developing a long list of um, concepts and directions out of that idea. This is no different than how I worked when I was non-objective. Mm-hmm. did the exact same thing in the sketchbook. So the sketchbook has always been essential to my process. Every idea, anything is viable. The sketchbook is not a place for um, analyzing. It's a place just to make ideas, whether they're good, bad, they suck or whatever, just throw them in there, throw them in there. Just keep coming up with idea after idea after idea. If some direction is good, follow. If mm-hmm. it is bad, you know, okay, fine, just leave it. And then I can go back to it six weeks, six months, six years later and say, wow, I didn't see what I see now in that direction. There's some real viable stuff and valuable stuff. I'm going to take that path. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many times six years later, I look at it and I go, damn, why couldn't I have seen that then? Right. And followed that direction further. Uh-huh. If anything, I regret in the way I worked is after a while, a year, two years, four years, five years, whatever, you get bored with a direction and I want to yes. kind of shift. Yeah. Right. I, I've experienced that lately. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And sometimes those ideas five years ago, you weren't ready for them. And it's, it's the passage of another five years in your life that makes you ready for that particular idea. Sure. Uh, that's kind of the way it's worked for me. And I, I love uh, that you're being very uh, open about your sketchbooks and how you use them, because that's one thing that I wish I, I do a lot of journaling, not so much sketching. But it's it's a component I would like to get in my own life. And I know the artists listening, I'm sure a lot of them would like to dedicate a little more time to their sketchbooks and being able to go back. So it's very valuable to hear that. And is there when you're working in your sketchbook, is there a certain time of day that's better for you? Is it constant? Do you have it by your side? What is your practice with your sketchbook? Well, normally I, I was taught to always have it. Uh huh. Yeah. I've been carrying a briefcase with my sketchbook in it since 1970. Mm-hmm. And I have boxes and boxes of my sketchbooks. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm putting more in, sometimes I'm putting less in, depends mm-hmm. where I am. But that's where it all starts. That's where it all develops. Um, obviously, I work from a photo as well as having models because I can't afford to pay the model $16 an hour when I'm only making $5 an hour to make a painting. Mm-hmm. That is a bad business model, right? <laughs> That's not good. And I do as much. I was taught that the sketchbook was the most important thing you've got mm-hmm. as an idea keeper, as an idea generator, as, um, well, you talk about it journaling. And so part of what's in my sketchbook is a lot of journal stuff mm-hmm. where I will just list as many related things as I possibly can um, and hope that each, as I'm thinking about those, they can take me in other directions. And then that becomes the, the loci for a whole new group of Mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And that's pretty much how I've always worked. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. Um, I push that on my students. Mm -hmm. Um, The sketchbook is everything. So my sketchbook starts off, um, probably like you, Armin, sometimes there's a little grain of an idea and it doesn't come back for months or maybe I, it comes back six years later mm-hmm. or sometimes I've had paintings where there's one little thing that's cool. Okay, it's in the sketchbook. And then uh, six months later, oh, there's another part. That part might go with that piece. And now they're together and now an idea can develop. Mm-hmm. Um, it might still take two more years before it comes together. And that's sure. okay. Yeah. You know, the sketchbook, the sketchbook means that I don't ever have to sit around and go, what the hell am I going to do next? Uh-huh. Right. Right. right? Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a list of so much crap that I will never get to that 
there you go. Yeah. Sketchbook is important. Oh, yes. You know, as this conversation rolls out here, you have a a project called The Secret Project. And uh, I'm sure that started being developed in your sketchbook. Explain to us The Secret Project. It's fascinating to me. Okay, so that started by me putting on social media in a number of places um, a request for people to send me a personal secret anonymously. Mm-hmm. that I could use in part or in whole as part of an artwork. And so they started to come into an anonymous mailbox, post office box. And I started to look at these things. And um, well, the first thing I noticed is after I had, you know, 20, 30, 40 of them, they were in groups. They were, um, you could catalog them. Human beings are obviously not that different. Years ago, I did a series on dreams. Mm-hmm. And between Jung and Freud, they say that human beings have about 40 dreams total. And each one of us has about well, 12 to 15 of them repeated over and over in your life. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones you will have. You don't get the others. Some people never get the flying dream. Some people never get the naked in public dream. Right? Oh, that's too bad. I always <laughs> <laughs> I get that <laughs> This is a podcast. I'm always waiting for that dream, Robert. Yeah, the naked and public dream is good. Because most of the time, nobody notices you're naked but you. Right, right. Which is weird. That's even yeah, more so sad. Likewise, I noticed that there was there was commonality to the, the responses I was getting. Mm-hmm. And my first um, guess was going to be that the most of them would be um, sexual in nature, right? Mm-hmm. Most of them would be, I had an affair or doing this or that, the other thing, which was not true at all. Um, It came out after getting a hundred or so of these things. The number one secret that Americans are keeping is they suffer horribly from depression. And it only dawned on me then that every time you go to the hospital or you go to your doctor's office, the first thing you fill out is a form that tells them about your depression level. Yeah. When yeah I, are, I can see that. I can see yeah. that. And so most everyone I talked to, I said, well, guess what my number one secret is? And they would all say, oh, infidelity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and except for nurses who would knew right off the bat that it was um, depression. Uh-huh. Have you personally so, suffered from depression? What? Have you personally suffered from depression? Oh, hell yes. I'm an artist, right? How could you not? It comes with. That's right. Since I was a little kid. You be an artist, they should give you Prozac. Just right yeah, it, yeah. There should be like a kit you get. Pencils, <laughs> erasers, some Prozac. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. That's more important than your T-square, so don't worry about it. You know. Well, it, it makes sense because you spend a lot of time with yourself. Uh-huh. Right. And you spend a lot of time. Um, with other people looking at you like you're either crazy or looking at you like, what the hell are you trying to do? That sucks. And that's a difficult position to be in, right? Yep. Yeah. So that was the number one. And then I did have, yeah, there was a lot of um, gender issues. There were a lot of affair issues. There was a lot of um, eating issues, disorders, one murder. Um, Oh, gosh. So anyway, I, as I went through these, I, I would pick the ones that were most interesting to me, but I didn't ever just focus on one letter, well, mm-hmm. except for maybe one time there was one that was really funny. Um, most of the letters, I had multiple um, people saying similar things. And so I, I spent my time researching feelings, right? Other people's feelings, my feelings on a subject. And trying to interpret that and get that down, not to illustrate it, but to make a painting or a work that gave you that feeling. And sometimes that meant that the image, I had to fight kind of a very normal, common um, visual that went with an image, like the depression image, which I stuck, you know, um, a woman out on a a beach where the sky and the land and the water and humanity all come together. Um, 
in a way that that was very strange looking. Um, I used light from LED headlights from a car that made the sand look like the surface of the moon. And, and I, it was not my intent, but when I went back that night um, to review what I had done, it was, wow, this is so otherworldly. And even though that you are firmly set on the edge of the entirety of, of, of sky, earth, water, and humanity, this person was in a completely other place. Yeah. And, and it struck me as an incredibly strong metaphor for what really happens. I mean, depression, I don't care. You are still sitting in your chair. Somebody can say, you know, break out of it. Uh, do this, do that, do the yeah, other. Turn that, turn that frown upside down, right? Yeah, great. That works. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is you are there. Yeah. You are physically there. And, and the world hasn't changed. It's still the same sucko place it was before. Sure. Right? And so that that feeling of disconnection where you're so really connected, it's just your point of view, um, kind of led me to the image that I used for that one. Okay. That, that's pretty much how it developed. The one of the paintings from that series is in gonna be in the um show the at the uh, National Portrait Gallery. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations on that. That's oh, thank you. I was very, very important. Uh, In fact, I'm sure it will be the pretty only. Amazing. Well, I'm not positive, but I think it will be the only portrait in the show that doesn't have a face. Oh, okay. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. And that show, I've been, uh, yes, congratulations. I know that uh, uh, from what I'm reading, Robert, and you can correct me, but it sounds like that happens every three years. Yes. Okay. Triennial show. Uh-huh. And the last winner, or maybe two times ago, was the woman um, who did the Michelle Obama portrait. Okay, okay. That's a one. So uh, I was happy to get into the finals. That was great for me. Being in the finals, there was a, almost 3,000 entries. You 3, had 000? one. Yeah, it was not a portfolio show. You had one um, piece that you entered. That's it. And um, they did the final judging by bringing all the um, semifinalists. They paid to have all the work shipped to Washington. Oh, and my God. Juried not by slide or slide. Where what planet do I live on? Right. Yeah. Um, we know what that is. <laughs> yeah. It was not judged by digital image. Uh-huh. They actually judged the real work. Yeah. So the last 80, the semifinalists uh, cut in half. And oh, the 40 right. finalists make up the show. I was very excited to get that part. That's, oh, that's, that's just so amazing. Before you, for you guys that are listening to this podcast, just check that out. It'll be in our show notes. Uh, I looked at some of the work today and it is, it's all phenomenal work. And then you think about how the entries, there's probably other phenomenal works that for one reason or another didn't get into it. Oh, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, but to be part of that is it's just stuff. I mean, you got to be very proud of yourself, uh, Robert. I was but you, you very deserve excited. It. You deserve but, it. Yeah, but as you say, there's. I'm sure there was another thousand that, that could have been in the show just as easily. And that becomes um, part of the jury process. Sure. Right? We, so have, we talk about that, that a bit. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and but, does this show, Robert, will this be a traveling show as well? Yes. So the show will be up for almost a year at the um, Smithsonian uh, National Portrait Gallery. And then it'll go on national tour. As of this point, I don't know what they've got scheduled. They haven't told us mm-hmm. what other museums will have it. My guess is probably two somewhere in the country because mm-hmm. um, you know how it is. They have to pack the show up. Mm-hmm. It's got to travel. Then it's got to be unpacked and hung. Um, that takes usually museums take months to do that. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing the, there'll be two shows. Mm-hmm. But I will say wherever it's going, I'm going. Oh, okay. good for you. I, do yeah. not, yeah, do not leave any schmoozing <laughs> off the table. Exactly. Right? Artists, schmoozing yeah. is wonderful. It works. <laughs> no, let's be real. I mean, in our yeah. job, part of our job is um, going out and promoting. So shameless self-promotion should not be a shame. It should be shameless. You should I, be I, think, I think you're correct. 
Perfect. Unless you have this kind of face. <laughs> it's no, hard I've got that kind of face. So I've got the white on top instead of the white. Well, I, I have it pretty white. <laughs> no, that's the networking uh, opportunities you're going to find, I'm sure, are going to be just priceless. And uh, well, yeah. we hope that maybe we'll get um, some representation, someone mm-hmm. interested mm-hmm. Um, outside of the tri state area here. That sure. would be fantastic. But look, the only way you get any opportunity is to put your butt out on the line and go out there, right? If you're depending oh, yeah. on on luck, I mean, luck is wonderful. I've had some great luck in my life, but part of luck is just going out there and, yeah. and making yourself available. We all know that. Right. Keep it an open yeah. That's good information for, for people listening to our podcast that, you know, this, oh, shucks, I'm not worthy attitude is not going to get you anywhere. No. <laughs> no. And we're all worthy. I mean, yeah. look, look at any artwork that's out there and um, the pluralist kind of art world we live in now, anything you do, there is an audience for. Mm-hmm. And it's not your job to, to fit into this gallery or that gallery. It's your job to find representation that has the audience that is interested in what you do. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Because there is... There's there's no norm. I mean, it is everything is viable, right? Mm-hmm. From right. content work to non-objective work to illusionist work, which is what I call what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, the audiences go with the galleries. The galleries know their audiences. And so many times I've uh, had students, how do I get involved with um, shows in a gallery, et cetera? And it's like, well, did you do a little research? Did you find who's got an audience that is um, amenable to what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if you're making candles, you're not going to sell them at the pants store. It just doesn't work, right? No and wonder so I can't sell to... my candles, Robert. <laughs> That's, yeah. So you got to go to the pants store yeah, if you're geez. selling pants. Yeah. And you got to go to the candle store if you're selling candles. It's no different. The business side, as you know, the business side of our business is just that. It's business. Mm-hmm. And I think people make the mistake when they enter galleries that mm-hmm. the ism that they're involved in might be abstraction. And you're, you're going in there as a realist or vice versa. I think that's when you have to do your job and research whatever you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the shows that we apply to. Mm-hmm. I'm not applying. You're not applying to shows for, um, you know, abstract expressionism or yeah. minimalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe you could squeeze in a conceptual show that yeah. might work. Yeah. But you pick the shows that the work fits into, and likewise in the business, you pick the the dealers or museum opportunities or whatever that your work fits into, and and. Um, Luckily, right now, it's totally open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is totally open. Mm-hmm. And things have changed in the last two years, too, uh, you know, yes. with d- different ways. And, and some of those are not negative changes. Some of them are positive changes, too. Well, and for I, me, they're very positive because yeah. I've spent, as you have probably, uh, the last 30 years with people saying, geez, you're going backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as if this were a um, staircase that you just mm-hmm. climbed one little step after another in, in quote, art development, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't work that way. Right. No. And Interesting, because our, our tagline, you know, is, uh, uh, you know, our ladder is climbing the, uh, you know, it's all about climbing that ladder. Yeah, but you can go both, both ways, sideways, any which way. You yeah, want to exactly. go sideways on a ladder. Yes. Well, yeah. well, the, the last 30 years was not so much um, climbing, although Straight up. Yeah. it was kind of what I do, what you do uh, was kind of uh, a bit restricted mm-hmm. and sometimes looked down upon as oh, yeah. second rate or second level. So the magazines that would show I was more fortunate than most, I guess, maybe because I would put dead people in my paintings. Well, the allegorical side of your yeah. your pieces are much more than just quote unquote realism, which I enjoy right. for itself at times too. But you had that extra mystery to your work. It was 
you know, you're, you talk about being an illusionist. I think that has to do not only with the way you paint, you know, this trompe kind of kind of attitude, but the stories behind there and wondering what those mean, because they're not easy to unravel in, not, in your work. Yeah, not, not at this point, because people haven't been trained like maybe you were or I was, that when you studied art history, you were studying history. Sure. And you were studying not just why he painted a certain way, but all the stories and all the um, metaphors and symbols and everything else that used to be part and parcel of what we did. And that went away when I was in school. I know that my school where I, I was first trained, um, oh, my God, it was throw the baby out with the bathwater. You were just you were retarded. That's what they would say. I was retarded if I went in that direction. Mm. Um, and that's kind of crazy. It's mm -hmm. not like yes. human being has changed. You look at any movie, it's not even like the stories have changed. And certainly the one thing that, that really struck me when I wanted to talk about the commonality between um, me now and, and man 10,000 years ago is sight. Language has changed. Mm -hmm. Cultures have changed. So many things have changed. The, the way we see, I assume, has not changed. Mm -hmm. And that experience is more than just um, visual. We perceive by sight. We understand by sight. Yes. Sight before we could communicate verbally. Sight before we communicate um, with writing, sight before we could communicate in a lot of different ways. When you see something, you have a, a natural reaction that you cannot even control, like a ball coming towards your head, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And this fascinates me, has continued to fascinate me. And it's more than just um, visual imagery, beauty, ugly, um, composition more than just um the visual it tells stories that's our our origin and that to me is fantastically wonderful mm -hmm. no, i agree speak to each other with image yeah mm -hmm. and you do that very very well thank you now so you, yeah to be sure we can't be so specific that every that we can't assume that anyone uh, or everyone understands exactly what you're talking about. Well, I, I, I think that would take the mystery out of it, too. I think, uh, you know, bringing it out there and understanding that certain people will connect and other people won't connect means that I think you're opening up people's imagination. Um, sometimes I see a really great painting that I look at and I say, OK, it's a great painting, but it's no more than that. You know, I, I want more to it. I want something more. And so uh, as a realist myself, I, I, I get into that as, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yours are, are always fantastic. The, oh, thank you. The level of um, technical proficiency and the idea weave together. And that's, that, for me, is what it's all about. And what, started me, what started me going from... Uh, my minimalism into this was a Jean Clouet painting that I saw at the, the Metropolitan Museum that was like no bigger than this, one of those little portraits with the blue background uh -huh. and something written in Latin behind it. Um, just an amazing like, geez, I could know this person. Mm -hmm. And that's just from just an image, right? Sure. And as simple as that is, it does what you're talking about. It's more than just replication. Exactly. Simple replication is what killed us in the first place. Yeah. It became those gorgeous flower paintings. Uh -huh. and, and yeah. Well, you know, I always talk to my students about concept and I, sometimes I see the eyes rolling. They just want to be able to, you know, work realistically. And uh, I find that concept without concept, I would not be an artist. Yeah. Mm hmm. And I find it really interesting, Robert, that you mentioned you went from, from minimalism to this conceptual side. And I hear a lot about artists, and I'm an abstractionist, going from realism to abstraction. 
And so there's this play of uh, different feelings. And, and my reason for abstraction is to create something that has never in a way that hasn't been done by anybody else. But what you're doing with your work, you're doing exactly the same thing because you're depicting the story in a way that nobody else could tell it that way. You know what I mean? It's just, it's unique. And I think, like you said, what killed realism, I'm guessing you, you mean realism, just straight on realism was the painting of the beautiful flowers just for the sake of beauty. You're creating art that has a meaning and story and the same kind of a feeling that an abstractionist would get as well. Oh, absolutely. A really absolutely. good abstractionist. It, it always came back to um, the analogy of, of a writer. A writer just doesn't put random words on the page because they look nice or because they sound nice, although a poet might. <laughs> there's an idea, there's a concept, it gets developed, the characters get developed, all the parts and pieces are integral to the whole, right? Yeah. And you cannot control or they cannot control exactly what the reader is going to think, mm -hmm. but you certainly can take information, digest it, make sense of it for you and represent it and that gives somebody a different perspective on the world, a different view of the world. And I guess that's what I was always trying to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I and when I started these things, actually, they were a bit more abstract when I started them, when I started painting. Um, but it didn't suit what I want because I did not want it to be about paint. I did not want it to be about brushstroke. I did not want it to be about how well you could paint. I was always told uh, in, by my profs that anyone can learn how to paint realism. Oh, I believe that too. And it's true. That it is, is true. not the accomplishment. And especially no. having the benefit of photo and, and um, digital. Oh, my God, it makes my job 20% easier. Sure. But that's not what the paintings are about. Anybody can do it. If you want to do it, right? I, I agree. Yeah. So there's it. If it's not an idea, it's just um, a beautifully painted pumpkin on a box. Exactly. You know, and, I mean, sometimes I get the you know the comment. It looks oh, that looks just like a photo, and then inside I'm steaming. <laughs> <laughs> I understand they're trying to give you a compliment. It's very yes. kind of you. Yes. But inside I'm like ah man, dude. <laughs> Yeah, and, and my comment is is always a really rude one when they say that. I go, well, it is. It's a photo of my painting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I go, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, dear. It's, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> it is. And, and, you know, you don't want to offend people. No. And the truth is, like you, um, I want to let people enjoy it on the level they can bring. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As with yeah. any written work, as any piece of fiction or or um, biography, people are only going to get what their experience allows them to get. Uh -huh. So if they can understand symbols, if they can understand metaphors, great, they're going to get more from my painting. They'll be able to dive in if they're having a, a problem getting a handle on where to enter the painting. Well, for me, that's where um, titles always were very, very helpful. Uh -huh. I agree with that too. Right. I mean, in, even in, in old, some wonderful Renaissance or Baroque paintings, if you didn't have the title, you'd go, what the, you can see what's going on maybe, uh -huh. but you don't know that that's, you know, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. You don't yeah. know that it's, yeah. you know, yeah. That's I, think it's a, I think it's more like a cryptic <laughs> hint of what you're going to be looking uh -huh. at. Yes. I don't want to be too obvious. No, but yet I wanted them to open up their their own story and imagination. It gives them a handle on how to open the door and come in. Mm -hmm. And for some people, you you don't need that. And, and I guess for the most part, I'm usually pretty happy that that although no one's going to get everything, most people when they approach the painting and have spent a little time with it get the general gist of what's going on there. Well, I've had the pleasure of hanging a show of yours at the Midland Center for the Arts with Bruce Winslow at the time. And, you know, when you hang a show, you see work in your own timeline, your own comfort. 
and it was wonderful to hang your show and spend a lot of time with each of your pieces. Yeah, I remember that show too. I was working as a volunteer there at the time, so I was helping. So it was just wonderful to just be in a room with them and just study them and the boats. And I just loved all of that. So there is, I try and put enough in there that you can, uh-huh. you can just take it at face value, Armin, yeah. like you said. Some people just go for the visual realism and are like, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. If that's as far as you can go, enjoy. (laughs) Yeah. But but there's a lot more fun there. Yes, there is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a journey through uh, your mind, but also in the in the artistic mind, the artist history mind when you go through your pieces. Yeah. The way other people might have handled this and such. And I've kind of explored different directions and points of view. I mean, there was a whole series of work um, that was very satirical and a lot of black humor. Some of the paintings that you hung. Yes. You look at it and you go, this is ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous and was meant to be so. Right. Mm -hmm. And by using the most serious form, oh, my goodness, this this ancient realism. That was for for serious paintings, people being killed and and blood squirting and, yeah, yeah. and serious subject matters. To be able to take goofy subject matters and make a satire of it to to kind of juxtapose um, the seriousness of realist painting versus the silliness of of human folly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so some of the series have gone that way. Uh-huh. The secrets paintings, for the most part, no, except for the one where there was, I had a secret where um, it was the, the, the funniest one. It was written by a woman who would uh, pleasure herself when she was riding in her car in the expressway. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's the nicest way I can put it, right? No, right. No. And, stay on <laughs> and I was just laughing my ass off until <laughs> I started to think about this. And I'm thinking 8.30 in the morning, I'm driving to school and the car in front of me is going, I'm going, Jesus, 8.30, this person's drinking already. And now it gave me a whole different thing. It was like, uh, maybe they're not drinking already. Yeah. So when you assume they're texting, look closely. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, oh, oh, I've got to, I have got to paint that one just for fun. Oh dear. That is. Did you, did you paint it? Oh, yes. <laughs> I have to check that oh, one yeah. out. <laughs> yes, be sure in the show notes, we know where to find these secret, the secret project paintings. Yes. <laughs> we well, they're all on my website. Everything's they're on all website. on your website. There you yes. go. Yes, and in fact, all the, the paintings, um, the whole website is divided up by series. By your series. By like time right. and series. So um, it's chronological. You can keep going backwards. But even as you go into any time period, you can see the series that were done in them. So oh, um, right now, that's the the series that's still up as current. Mm-hmm. Although I'm just about starting on a whole new series. And uh, speaking of, you're getting ready to start. It seems like twenty and year two, 20 and twenty one were very productive for you. They were okay. I uh-huh. was I mean, certainly lucky. Yeah, I was certainly lucky in terms of um, getting the work out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think it was much different than being in the studio any other time. In a way, it was like, wow, less distractions. Can't right. go out for dinner. <laughs> right. Is, now, tell us about your studio space a little bit. Is it uh, in your home, out of your home? Yeah. So when we moved here from New York, uh-huh. um, in New York, I had a really nice studio. I had about 2,000 square feet uh-huh. in Tribeca and, and an even larger studio in Soho before that. Wow. Um, so when we were, we came out here, I, we bought this house because it had, uh, an attached garage that I turned into my clean studio mm-hmm. and it's about 400 square feet and that's for drawing and painting. And then I have another detached garage. It's also about 400 square feet for all my woodworking and welding because, um, 25 years I worked doing construction. That's how I paid my bills. Okay. And it was much more lucrative than teaching was Mm -hmm. and it was also easier for me to control my schedule so Mm -hmm. if I had a show to do I could say well I'm not taking work from June to August 
Yeah. And that's fine. And you can do that when you're working construction, you get off the crew. Or if I was doing, starting in New York, I was able to do a lot of um, good custom-made woodwork and steel work for architects. Mm. At the time in New York, they weren't doing a lot of construction. They were doing a lot of renovation. So when a building would go co-op, I would get a, a contract to do like the whole lobby, the concierge station, the fixtures, the tables, the light fixtures, the whole nine yards. And that's how I made my living in even when we moved here. And it was only a few years into being here that they asked me to teach. I had always kind of stayed away from it purposefully mm-hmm. because I found the politics of these places to be absolutely wicked. Mm-hmm. And I have a big mouth. And oh, Robert, go on with yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> and I get myself in trouble saying shit that I shouldn't say. <laughs> And so I got, <laughs> I found it was difficult. So even, you know, when I was in undergrad, I had a freshman class. When I was in graduate school, I had um, freshman classes and that was great. I loved the teaching part, but I could see what the faculty was doing and they were like trying to kill each other. Oh. And I didn't, I didn't want that. No. That's not conducive to our thing. Um no. So I just kind of stayed away. I would always uh-huh. take teaching gigs, like um, visiting artist gigs. Yes. Or, um, yeah, visiting artist gigs. And uh, like at Goddard College, I did a semester up there. And um, mm-hmm. in the city, I would do visiting artist gigs. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I tried to stay away from the politics. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, it turns out CCS... Mm-hmm. when they hired me was going through a complete change. Okay. And some people were really kind of upset about it because a lot of people got uh, moved out. Uh-huh. But the, the crew that was moved in, we got along famously and it was fantastic. There wasn't a big war going on. There wasn't mm-hmm. big factions in the faculty to fight. So teaching was more of a joy. So at the Center for Creative Studies in Detroit, you were college also college, college for creative yeah. studies in Detroit. Uh, you were the uh, foundation's chair. Yes, for a long time, for like uh-huh. 17 years. And just talking with you today, I would love to have you as a teacher because I, you have a, I'm going to call it the gift of gab. Let's put it that way. Robert. Yes. And I always looked at teaching. I don't know about you guys, <laughs> but I always looked at teaching as a floor show. Okay. Oh, definitely. I, I got information that they got to have, but yeah. if you are dry, dull, and boring, they're all going to be asleep, right? Exactly, exactly. And so I would make it as fun as possible. And you want the edge sometimes, don't you? You know, yeah. like, am I going overboard here? And, and I went overboard the ass. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, love that. So I would. I was constantly making jokes or... Um, and I would catalog the jokes too. So you could use them the next semester <laughs> and they became part of my routine for the next year. And so that's how I always teach it. Um, but like teaching drawing became just a whole hell of a lot of fun. Uh-huh. And teaching design was, was great fun. Um, my lectures literally were like a floor show, but I always had a, a Nerf ball because in design lecture, you got kids in the in the um, lecture hall. What at eight o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. right? The oh, room, yeah. the lights go out. I'm putting images up, projecting them on a screen. This, you're just inviting everyone to go to sleep. So I would have to pepper the lecture with swear words and and obnoxious <laughs> comments and everything else to keep them alert. And if they would fall asleep, I would take my Nerf ball and throw it at them. <laughs> Oh, well, I would love that. I, I could not, that. I don't think I could get through teaching right now. Right now. Because everything is um Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What do, what do they say? That you, you just well everything is too politically correct. There you go. That's what I was and saying. I always tell my students that when I start a class, Zoom class or whatever, if you hear an F word, if you don't like it, close your ears, <laughs> give me the finger, whatever you want to do, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna muzzle myself. Right. Oh, and that's yeah. and that's also part of the fun to keep them interested. Keep them. Keep they them do wake up when you say that. They absolutely they wake up. So, Mr. Yeah. Sheffman, you were the first person to use the F bomb in class. <laughs> and that's yeah. great. Okay, fine. That's 
Nobody put, that up, put that on my epitaph, will you? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I had great attendance because they would come for the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Well, we have oh, yeah. we have a friend, uh, you know, Todd Burroughs, and I know he Todd has that. Well. Yeah, and he has that same personality. He's mm-hmm. fun to be around. That's what makes him such a great teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you want to come to class because whoever is doing it is giving you the information, mm-hmm. and you can trust the information. But you're getting it in a fun way. In a fun way, and it's, it's goofy, I know, but yeah. that's really that was my my style. Of well, we're in the beginning. We started talking about selling yourself as an artist. That's kind of selling yourself as a teacher that uh-huh. you are human and you're not going to be some stiff ass up there where you fall asleep. To. Yeah, there right. you go. You notice I said the word ass. Here. I we did, we did. <laughs> Thank you. We all, we all have them. <laughs> yeah. uh, some of us have when... two. <laughs> That's right. You get a double. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, I I think that it's actually essential, and it. it also, sometimes the goofy ways that I could um, teach uh, someone how to draw. Um, I taught drawing as a magic trick mm-hmm. because it is essentially a magic trick. We don't do anything real. We don't make things. We don't make trees, cars, pizzas, palumbras. We now don't. This, do- is, this is not a pipe, right? Yeah. This yeah. is the illusion of something. How do you make an illusion? Mm-hmm. Whatever way you have to to make it an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. Just like a magician. And I would use those magician analogies, you know, how do you get the woman um, to disappear on one side of the stage and show up on the other side of the stage in a box, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And once they realized that it wasn't a trick, that it was her sister, right? Uh-huh. You stop trying to make, um, you stop trying to figure out how to do something, right, logically. It's not logic. Mm-hmm. There are rules. You follow the rules. You make somebody believe in something that never happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a lot of success and a lot of fun that way with the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, as we close, Robert, and boy, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, did we leave out anything? I know there's so much more we could cover. Uh, any thoughts? for maybe students or your audience or other artists uh, that you would like to share before we uh, say goodbye here? We pretty much covered a lot of it. I mean, for artists, it's always pay less attention to what other people saying and pay more attention to becoming objective. Great. Love it. Yeah. yeah. That is the single most important thing gift that you can get to for yourself is objectivity. Mm -hmm. Right. It's why we we do um, crits is to mm-hmm. learn to be objective, mm-hmm. and between being learning to be objective and learning to work in the sketchbook, I don't know. For me, those are the two most important lessons mm-hmm. of of my life. Oh, one more. I'll just throw this. I was fortunate enough to always. I love taking the oldest professors in the school. I thought they might have some kind of knowledge that the young guy just didn't have because they didn't have experience, right? And so I had one prof, I remember, in undergrad, John DiMartelli, who first showed in the World Exhibition of 1920. So we're talking old timer, right? Uh That means he was born about 1900. And Uh I had him in 1970 or 71. And he said that the real measure or goal for you is or shouldn't be what gallery you get into, what show you get into, but whether you can continue doing this until you're 80 or 90 years old. Yeah. Good, good, good. And I have always told my kids at school, that's your goal. Your goal is to like a a doctor, this Mm. is your life. And to keep this life going, and to be creative for the entirety of your life and not give up. Look, you guys know how many people, friends, um, colleagues, at some point in their life gave up the art. Sure. Let's face it, it's, it is not an easy road. We can joke about it and everything else, but it is difficult and it is psychologically taxing. Yes, to have everyone constantly judging you mm-hmm. and telling you what a nimnal you are, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. 
it's difficult. It's hard. And it's hard not to pick on yourself. And it's also hard to have two jobs, right? Yes, it is. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's most important. Great. There you go. Yeah. Sketchbooks, good. objectivity, and longevity. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I say to my students, you know, what did I think was a success when I was a young artist is different. But I wake up every morning, the first thing I think of, I'm an artist. I'm excited about my new project. That makes me so successful. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not in the National Portrait Gallery. I'm not quite that successful. Yeah. This year. This year. <laughs> yeah. But then oh, again, man. I wasn't in last year. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. But you're in this year. And Lord, we're going to travel around and see that for sure. I will be <laughs> in this year. And we will go to Washington for the, yes. for the show. And oh, uh, wherever else it goes, I will go there too. You've got it. Well, we'll see you thank out. Thank you guys. Oh, thank, thank you guys you. for having me. It was a great yeah, interview. Everyone. And I, I'm going to see you soon for that dinner we talked about. Oh, yes. And, that would be uh, lovely. Look forward to That'd that. Great. And thank you for your contribution to the arts. And you're one of the best known artists in, in Michigan. And uh, you really shine. And uh, that, was, that was a great interview there, Robert. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find our past and future episodes at anchor.fm, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook page, Art Ladders, The Creative Climb, with Valerie Allen and Armin Mersman. Special thanks to our producer, Taylor Kramer of Cold Shower Media. And check out our websites, ValerieAllenArt.com, ArminMersman.com. Stay creative, stay curious, and we'll see you next time.